The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. <laughs> I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. Welcome to the China Sports Insider Podcast on the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Hyde Ballion, and I am with the China Sports Insider, Mark Dreyer, who is finally out of quarantine. Mark, what is the first thing you did when you left your quarantine hotel? Uh, ordered a pizza and a drink. <laughs> well, you you have stumbled out into a world where nothing is happening, where sports intersects with China. Nope, like the landscape is yes, completely we, barren. Nothing. Nothing to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I saw, yeah. I saw I saw. this described, the uh, the Peng Shui story, I saw this described by, you know, a, a non-sports China watcher as the biggest China story of the year. And here we are in, in late November. You know, that's not my sport bias kind of, uh, you know, putting this out there that that was someone who's who's not particularly a sports fan so it was like okay yeah it does has sort of seemed like a pretty big story from our point of view but i guess uh, it has been for other people <laughs> as well so so today we are going to talk about the punk shui story and the wta and and the wta's response we're also going to talk about a, a talk of a diplomatic boycott of the beijing olympics which is heating up then we talked to joshua lee who organizes these massive esports tournaments in China. Uh, you know, we talk about the incredible growth of esports in China. This was this was an eye-opening interview for me. Like esports is a world I don't know that much about. And and after we talked to Josh, I feel like I'm I'm getting it. Mark, I didn't get to get a chance to ask you this before, but like do you play video games? Are you are you a gamer? I'm not actually. You know what? I've kind of come around on the issue a little bit because you know, the, there's been so many. There's been growing interaction between the, you know, the traditional and, and the online worlds. Um, I, personally, I haven't. I, I've sort of been a little bit, I guess, old-fashioned in in my thing. Well, you know, like I like sport in terms of getting out there and getting some exercise. And you know, with with two young kids uh, my, myself, like I'd much rather than be running around outside than than inside playing yeah. games. You know, from from, yeah. from a kind of health point of view. So so I think that has slightly unfairly skewed my my 
my view of, of, of esports thus far, but I'm, I'm kind of coming around. Like I think the worlds are intersecting more than ever before. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to get into that and a lot more with Josh Lee later on in the show. But first, let's get on to our first story. Okay, Mark, since last week, a lot has happened. So we, we are recording this on Wednesday afternoon, China time. And, and the constant stream of news seems to be slowing down a little bit. Lots of opinion pieces uh, right now. And of course, I'm talking about Peng Shui. In, in term, you, you mentioned the international interest in this story. And, and that is kind of demonstrated by like the fact that you've, you've, you've basically been everywhere on international media, it seems like. like who's, who's been asking you to comment? Well, to be honest, my, my phone was, was ringing, not quite nonstop over the weekend. But um, yeah, if there are any journalists who, who tried and failed to get a hold of me, I apologize. I, I was trying to speak to as many people uh, as possible. It just it, it was, you know, it was, a, it was a super interesting story with so many different angles as well. Um, and I, I guess there's just not that many people currently in China who, who can, can talk about this. You know, it, it's as we know, it's been completely censored. Um, in 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 Chinese media. Now there was a video that came out um, since we did the show last time, and and it was clear that Pang was um, a, a guest of honor at a tournament in Beijing early Sunday morning, a youth tournament, and there was video of uh, and pictures of that um, being released. So that to some extent, you know, at least people saw saw that she was she was you know seemed to be well in in Beijing. Now it didn't answer any of the questions. You know, was it? You know, was was she there of her own accord, etc.? Didn't certainly didn't answer the questions that the WTA had had been calling for in the tennis community, but it was certainly better than nothing. Um, and then the latest, of course, was is this the the somewhat painful attempt at, at a staged call with the IOC. You know that China's going to be very happy with that. Frankly, um, the IOC basically wants to make this go away so that it can move on to the Olympics, and it doesn't want a distraction there. You know, it's it's certainly not going to help shift the needle much in terms of the international reaction and, and how the tennis community is looking at this. Their, their, their questions about, you know, what really is the situation for Pang um, haven't, haven't been answered uh, to any degree. So, so let's talk a little bit about, about the uh, WTA piece of all of this. Uh, ben Rothenberg, who's a well-respected tennis journalist who should really come on this show. Ben, if you're listening, please come on the show. Um, he had a story in Slate this week, and, and a lot of what he wrote about was the amount of money at stake here you know he pointed out and this is, we've, you've talked about this before as well the the nba lost something like 150 to 200 million us dollars after the infamous daryl morey tweet in terms of the wta pre-covid 11 tournaments in china including the huge wta finals in shenzhen it's like this massive purse 14 million dollars way more than what the men were getting uh, for their finals this year, because of COVID, the WTA finals took place in Mexico. This just happened in Guadalajara, which sounds delightful. And, and by all accounts, it was this feel-good tournament. Uh, lots of fans in the stands, hopefully vaccinated and, and masked fans. But, you know, the prize purse was down from $14 million to $5 million. So if the WTA does leave China and, and it... I don't know. It looks to me that like like that's where we're heading. The players are going to feel it in their pocketbooks. It's it's a great point. Um, it's not about the top players. The top players are comfortable, right? They earn enough to to have their their support team and travel around the world. It's kind of like that mid tier. That that's I think the the people who 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 are really hit by the the lack of funding. And so the league, you know, the tour 
excuse me, kind of really needs to 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 figure out how to how to, if necessary, redistribute the money if if the the overall amount, the overall revenues are are lower. Now they're not, of course, losing all those ten tournaments a year from China because, as you said, they're they're getting they're replacing them with others, even if they're they're slightly. Um, less less valuable but i think in terms of reputational risk uh, given what's go- gone on with pang and 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 continues as an evolving situation um the wta certainly felt that it had no choice and it's been very clear as to say we are not playing in china until we get answers on this so we've kind of reached a bit of an impasse um you yeah. know steve simon has taken a very firm stance on this uh, and it's it's almost impossible while he's still in position uh for, for 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 them for them to kind of back down. Now that said, I don't expect necessarily um, this to get resolved anytime soon because the next time they would be playing in China would be almost a year from now. And with COVID, like who who's who's going to predict that China is even going to allow international tournaments outside the Olympics and the Asian Games, which will probably both be bubble events in 2022. So we could be looking at nearly two years from now before this kind of needs to be resolved before any real decisions need to be made so so you know that that is something to consider you know the media it's a story right now people want answers but i don't think we're going to have long-term answers anytime soon that's a great point so let's let's move on to our second story mark um here is some tape to tee us up so what's the word diplomatic of the beijing olympics something we're considering all right that was a very short clip um that was of course, President Joe Biden at, at a press availability earlier this week. Mark, for as long as I've been reading ChinaSportsInsider.com, you have been keeping a boycott watch. And, and pretty much everything that you've been writing about and that everything you've been sort of predicting is, is happening right now. So, so can you make some sense of this? What is happening right now? Well, first of all, just, uh, just about the boycott watch, it kind of was getting pretty tiring. I'll be honest. It was like, you know... It was just endless noise and, and nothing was really happening. I feel like a bit of a broken record when it comes to uh, Olympic boycotts because everyone's talking about boycotts. That gets headlines. But a boycott to me is where the athletes don't show. Um, either there's a government decision to say you are not allowed to travel or the athletes uh, in, as individuals say I'm not going to go in protest of this, that or the other. What we're talking about is a diplomatic boycott or a commercial boycott, which is even less likely. And, and it to me, that's just not a boycott. Now, okay, now that that's out of the way, you know, and I've had my rant again, um, <laughs> I think it's also worth saying that that presidents and prime ministers from Western nations typically don't go en masse to the Winter Olympic Games opening ceremony. I don't exactly know when the, the last time that the U.S. president went to a Winter Olympic Games, but Obama didn't go to Sochi in, in 2014. He sent Billie Jean King. Um, as, as a sort of a statement about gay rights uh, and given the, 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 the issues that Russia had uh, on that issue. So um, no one really described that as a boycott um, to, to my recollection. So I, I don't really consider Biden not showing as a, as a boycott. Someone's going to show from the U.S. side and, and, you know, eventually we'll move on and we'll get to the games. And, you know, we are we are a sports podcast. <laughs> God. So <laughs> it's the usual story. Before every Mark, I just Olympics, want to talk about sports. I know, um, seriously, yeah, yeah. Oh, sure. please, guys, please. Um, you know, before every Olympics, there's no real sports to, to focus on. So you know, they kind of have to do have to do that. <laughs> uh, 
I'm actually going to be heading to Chongli next weekend for a couple of days of skiing. So so this is basically my chance to go there before it's it's sucked under the bubble. Yeah. You know, I'll take a lot of photos and and, and I'll let you know how pre- preparations are coming along there. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, preparations here are going full steam. The, the Olympics are going to take place no matter what. I saw some pictures this week, actually, of um, some Chinese athletes uh, preparing on the on the sliding track. So this is off the back of some of the test events with the luge and the bobsled and so on. And double luge, double luge, where where people are basically lying on top of each other. That's going to be fun. <laughs> That's going to be pretty fun. That's going to be pretty fun. Um, the one thing I will say is that we've had, I think, three um, participants, uh, luges, I think they all were, that, who, who were tested positive, um, largely asymptomatic, while they were over in China for the test events. And... Uh, there was an accident for, for another loser and, and sort of he ended up in Chinese hospitals. And I think there is genuinely a little bit of concern about what happens to the athletes if they test positive. They're obviously going to, you know, uh, do their best not to not to have COVID and not to get COVID. But what happens if they're asymptomatic and they test positive and they go to a Chinese hospital and how long are they going to be in a Chinese hospital? People who haven't been to China you know, have never been to a Chinese hospital. And I think it's probably a scary thought, probably much more scary than the reality. They've seen the pictures or they've heard the stories. And this is not just the athletes themselves. I've heard people from the media thinking, well, I don't want to go because I'm going to be stuck in a bubble. What happens if I get COVID from someone else in there? And then I'm in a Chinese hospital for the next two months. Like, when can I get out? So there is a little bit of concern. I don't know that, that there's any way to alleviate that concern, frankly. Um, but uh, that is kind of some of the stuff I've been hearing over the last few days. Mark, is there any possible chance that the NHL players won't come uh, to China after all? Well, like um, you know, some of the other decisions uh, in hockey, this has been on again, off again. They've committed to coming. They said the only reason they wouldn't come is if there was a COVID, a COVID outbreak that derails their season. I did see one story because the Ottawa Senators had three games canceled because they had a, an outbreak in the camp. Hopefully that's contained. The players basically have still um, repeated, reiterated that they want to come. I really hope, I really hope the league, as we know, the league has never wanted to come, but I really hope they don't have an excuse to, uh, to pull the players out at this stage. That, that would be kind of uh, pretty disastrous from, from the Olympics point of view. Um, but yeah, anything can happen. I mean, I think, I think we've learned in, in, this, in this new normal of COVID, and particularly with the way that things can change on a dime here. You know, a couple of cases spring up and the restrictions just internally in China, in Beijing, um, are dramatically different. And so that's kind of, you know, everyone's on 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 edge. Everyone's not quite sure, you know, what's going to happen in terms of, of how they handle these things. Uh, and it can, all ha- it can all change very, very quickly. Joshua Lee oversees tournaments and esports at Perfect World, a media company based in Beijing. He joins us from Shanghai. Hello, hello. Perfect World, which is, as I said, the company that you work for, um, it distributes Dota 2 and Counter-Strike Global Offensive in China. Like, why, why are these games used in tournaments? You know, why, why not my favorite game, for example, which is Zelda Breath of the Wild? Uh, why are they used in tournaments? I guess part of it is definitely history. Um, both of these games have a very long history where they pretty much... Uh, like their community and their scene grew up with competitive um, tournaments. So you go back to like the mid early 2000s, a lot of these games or their predecessors have been around since then. Uh, so I think that's one of the biggest reasons is that there's this um, 
historical cultural inertia associated with these games. And then the second part of why they kind of grew with that is because they naturally lend themselves to such a team aspect. And I think when it comes to competitive esports, having a team aspect is pretty important. Josh, is is there any scope for like for new games coming in? And, and like, how would you how big would you have to be to kind of, you know, develop that fan base to then potentially swap in at the top levels of, of competitive esports? Uh, I think there's definitely always a lot of room. That's kind of also kind of, I guess it's part of the the draw of esports uh, because it's on the internet, it's on the computer, and all of these things, they move really fast. So it's not like traditional sports where you need to actually physically get people to play and try it out to really get an idea of what it's like and then to see uh, if they want to be, be a part of it. It's like video games, so it's on the computer, it's on the internet. So there's always space uh, for people to get into it. Where does China excel uh, potentially when it comes to esports? There's comparative advantages and they're different based on who you compare to. Uh, if you compare to Korea, I don't think that China in particular has a very specific comparative advantage other than the fact that China has a really, really big market. So China is like 10 times the size of Korea when it comes to esports market. Uh, so that's a big advantage that China holds over pretty much everyone. Um, and then on top of that, I guess... There's actual specific advantages uh, when it comes to the actual, like, I would say like community engagement because in China, esports and gaming has reached a point where everyone and their mom literally is watching and playing these games. <laughs> uh, so so that's, that's still not quite there in, say, the US or Europe, even though uh, both of those places are getting there. Uh, so, yeah, I think those are the two biggest points. Um, and in China, that particular advantage you can see it kind of uh everywhere right you can turn on the television you can see people talking about esports you can go on the bus or the metro and you can see like all kinds of people playing games that actually have esports scenes and then that is basically magnified by my first point which is that they have this huge scale yeah and and that was really illustrated earlier this month right when that esports team based in shanghai edg won the 2021 League of Legends World Championships finals in Reykjavik. And and they won like over $2 million. But, you know, more importantly, there were these incredible scenes of celebration, people all over China celebrating the win. You know, it seemed like a real touchstone moment for the sport in, in China. You know, what, what went through your mind when you saw all those people celebrating? Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I wasn't surprised at all because like if you are part of these kind of communities, you will see that the level of passion is basically it's on par with traditional sports, right? People are celebrating like you might expect people in Europe or South America to celebrate when their country wins the World Cup. And uh, I think so for one, that's not surprising at all. Uh, for another, you mentioned the prize pool. I think uh, uh, the team in League of Legends, they won $2 million-ish. Right. Uh, I got a, I got a call. Um, I got to point out that uh, on Dota 2, our teams in their regular world championship, they compete for a prize pool that's definitely uh, more than that. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. The, the Dota 2 prize pool is uh, this year it was 40, 40 some odd million. So first place took home about 15 million. What kind of really struck me about the the EDG win was was actually not the online community, but but sort of the offline gatherings. You know that when that was like you said, though there was a great description. It, it was it was just like you know soccer in South America with people going crazy. Um, I mean, it, was that just because they you know they turn up for the final, or is or these kind of 
offline gatherings uh, fairly regular as well? Uh, the offline gatherings are definitely pretty regular. Uh, we call them in Dota, we call them kind of pub stomps. Each different game has different ways of calling them, but in the end, it's all pretty similar, right? It's like people getting together anywhere. Uh, the, the most popular ones that we saw for EDG winning was uh, a lot of kids in uh, high schools and uh, colleges, uh, a lot of college campus things. So I think in that sense, it's like, I think that illustrates my generational point of view. It's like everyone in that generation is definitely going to be following it. Um, yeah, and I think it's pretty natural to just bring it offline, right? Because online is like online is a force multiplier, but offline is really where the passion really comes through, and that's where you really feel like, oh, okay, cool, this is this is like a thing. It's tangible. If you're a fan of soccer, you often get into it from a young age, and it's it stays with you through your life. Yep. Do you see this happening with with the current generation who's into esports? Like, a, is it something that they will? perhaps grow out of, if you will, like, or, or will this really grow as the next generation backfills? And will there, there'll be an older generation of, of esports fans as well? Uh, I think that's a pretty good question. It's one that a lot of esports uh, titles, um, whether from the publisher side or from the tournament side, uh, it's one that has been coming up more and more as a lot of the more classic or bigger esports titles grow older. Uh, for example, League of Legends, uh, but more more in my wheelhouse, Dota 2 and CSGO, they're all uh, approaching the 10, 15 year marks, right? As actual competitive esports titles that have been active on the market. And so that's definitely a topic that comes up more and more, right? Because people that maybe they started playing when they were in middle school, high school, right? And by now they're in their late 20s, early 30s, mid 30s, etc. And people are starting to have kids, they're starting to have their own families. And then the topic of, okay, is is this thing being passed on through these fans, right, through generations? And I think, uh, personally, for me, anecdotally, I've seen a lot of it uh, at our tournaments. We see um, dads with their, with their girlfriends who are now wives and they've brought their kids to the tournaments and... We have seen where there's there are kids around the world, right? Because their dad is a fan of so and so, the kid is also okay. I'm I'm a fan of this. Or we see like former professional players. They have they retire. They have kids, and then there's they're like I'm gonna teach my kid to play this game, and then my kid is gonna win. You know, like right now for Dota two, we're at TI ten. Next year is TI eleven, and the professional players um, they're saying my kid's gonna win TI twenty five. Right. Uh, and the community understands what that means. And people are actually thinking like it's, you know, it's possible because there's this there's this continuity with these esports scenes. Uh, but as far as like how exactly to develop the scenes such that they're actually sustainable up to that point or beyond uh, in a way that is analogous to maybe basketball or football. I think those two are the biggest examples in the in the um, in the tr- world of tra- traditional sports. Oh, that's definitely a continuing and ongoing question because with video games, right, like we don't have any precedence of video games going 20, 30, 40 years straight uh, continuously just because the technology and all these things has only been around for, say, 15 years, 20 years. Well, Josh, 20 20 years ago, 2001, I, I landed in South Korea, in Busan, South Korea, as a young English teacher and almost immediately was introduced to these PC rooms where I started playing Counter-Strike and just got my ass handed to me. (laughs) And the next year, Busan hosted the Asian Games where, you know, I went to see 
the uh, the basketball men's gold gold medal game where Yao Ming was playing and you know South Korea won and whatever. Next year, uh, Hangzhou is hosting the Asian Games here in China, and esports is going to be a medal sport. And this is something that that you actually told me earlier uh, earlier this month. I mean, you're the one who runs tournaments. Like, how how do you run a tournament at a, at the Asian Games? Well, this is the first time it's an actual medal event at the Asian Games, so I, th- I imagine a lot of the things will kind of be like uh, we're going to have to see as we go um, what the best approach is. So a lot of the things are not completely set. I'm sure some of the things that we end up doing this time may not be the best thing, so we have to iterate over time just because um, it's the first time. Uh, but I would say that like if you if you wanted me to forecast a little bit how it might look like. Uh, from where I stand right now, I would imagine that uh, since it's the Asian Games, first of all, it's based on nations, right? So each nation sends like a team. Uh, how that nation sends their team probably is going to be based on their own like national esports committee or something like that, right? They may have like some kind of qualifiers. They may have some kind of like national team search, right? And then as far as the esports that are involved, I'll speak from the one that. Uh, I will be involved in Dota 2. Um, Dota 2 is a team game, so it's basically you can think of it like a team sport. Uh, there's five players, which roughly translates to five different positions in that sense. It's kind of analogous to basketball, so uh, perhaps there will be kind of a national search uh, amongst the top qualified professional players for each position. Uh, and then we place with that a search with uh, also a coach for the national team so it's kind of i would imagine um for the outsider it may look kind of similar to how for example a usa national team goes for basketball for the olympics right you may have training camps you may have a national team coach who says these are the players that i want to try out and you may have a couple rounds of that will esports be at the olympics someday i think that's the hope for a lot of people um but there's also i think in the esports world and communities globally there's a lot of people, especially younger people, right? Like, uh, I understand the Olympics has a little bit of a, I wouldn't say crisis, but they have a little bit of challenge with younger generations uh, where younger generations don't really care that much about the Olympics. And I think uh, based on the kind of dialogue that I see amongst esports fans regarding the Olympics, there's probably a very large portion of esports fans that really find no particular value in esports of any kind for any title being part of the Olympics. A lot of people I see seeing, uh, they say things like, why does esports need to be in the Olympics? Like, we understand our own sport being in the Olympics. They may not understand. So what value does it bring to us, right, as a scene or as a title? That's really interesting. I, I mean, that you know, there's there's the two narratives. There's like kind of esports pushing to be included in the Olympics, and then you know you flip it around like you've just done and think, well, actually, it's the Olympics kind of desperate for. They've brought in the the, the skateboarding and the and the surfing and and potentially esports. So it's so it's almost what you're saying is is the Olympics need esports more than esports need the Olympics. That's one way definitely to argue it. Uh, for me personally, I don't know that I would take one way or the other at this moment, but I can definitely see the points on both sides, right? I think there's definitely a lot of prestige and honor in being part of the Olympics. It's, I mean, for me, I think it's super fun to watch the Olympics just because it's such an occasion where the world comes together. It's very unique. So esports being part of that uh, definitely is pretty cool. But yeah, I also understand like, you know, esports has gotten this far without the Olympics. Um, everyone at this point in time, at in 2021, like there's so many 
so many groups and people and industries that are looking to get involved in esports in some way. Uh, and that has nothing to do with, say, the Olympics or traditional sports at all, really. Uh, so, you know, I, I think if esports gets together with the Olympics, it should be a way where it adds value to both sides. And I think there's definitely a way forward with that. But I guess, like, we're probably still some years out from that discussion really, really being serious. Back in September, there were these new rules that were put into effect in China uh, that restricted anyone under 18 years old to gaming three hours a week. So so one hour a day from, from Friday to, to Sunday. You know, at the time, there was a speculation that it would be painful for professional sports. You know, three months down the line, what, what kind of impact are you seeing? Um, for us running tournaments and esports specifically, the most direct impact is that uh, for all of our tournaments, we have now added a gate, right? Like if you're under the age of 18, when the tournament starts, you can't participate. And I think that's just the safe option right now before any more specific regulations come out regarding it. Uh, but I think if you have, if you would have me look a little bit forward, right? Like maybe next year or the year after something forward, I think like overall, this isn't necessarily a bad thing for esports as a whole, because uh, prior to this, um, like esports, has had a bit of a growing problem when it comes to, like, uh, I guess, processes and regulations and contracts and things like that, right? And so when uh, it's an industry that regularly engages with minors, um, whether competitively or just the games are mostly played by minors or things like that, uh, sometimes having more regulation is not a bad thing in that if we go forward from this, um, and the, the hope is that there's more regulations to come that kind of like makes it more clear how minors can start getting involved, right? Uh, so maybe um, from this, the next step is like a set of rules and regulations and processes for how uh, minors would get involved in a way that, for example, they're not being exploited or they're being protected. Right. Because before that, I don't think there was any. So maybe if we get further down the line and there is a clear set of rules for that, it actually more legitimizes esports and it allows minors to get involved in a more constructive, positive manner that's good for everyone. I think in China, and this is not specific to esports, but because of the market and, uh, you know, for, from a from a, a global perspective, people are always talking about 300 million this, 400 million this, you know, 700 million that. What's your sense of kind of the growth of esports? Um, you know, how many people are playing? Um, uh, any kind of numbers that, that you feel sort of are, are realistic that, that, that you can kind of share? I think, yeah, like you said, a lot of numbers uh, for tracking the China market are pretty nebulous. It's pretty hard to get a very, very clear idea. Even if you work with the best analytics possible, it's just, yeah, it's just the nature of the market, right? Analytics is not that developed here. So it's a little bit harder to actually specifically track things as you might expect uh, coming out of a report, say, for North America. But I think um, somewhat anecdotally, but also somewhat based on, like, the numbers that I do manage to uh, get my hands on, I would say, like, in the key demographics for esports and, like, competitive gaming as a whole in China, if you look at it, uh, for one, it definitely starts trending younger um, for the gaming side, right? Like everyone has a phone now. Um, so it's trending very young because kids with phones have been playing. And that's part of what the recent regulations have been aimed at. They don't want kids with phones playing games that much. Um, 
But that also points out that uh, I think for these demographics, you should also kind of differentiate between like mobile gaming and PC gaming, console gaming. Com- console gaming is not as much of a thing uh, in China, but yeah, so it's mostly mobile gaming and PC gaming. And then amongst those demographics, I would say that the key um, kind of core demographic would be like the 15 year old to like 23, 24, 25 ish. Um, once people get out of college, it kind of kind like actual participation level kind of tends to trend off, but then their actual, um, like their spending power goes up, right? People get jobs and then they don't lose the passion. They just start showing it in other ways, which is spending on merchandise, spending on like live broadcast events, things like that. Um, And then as far as how much of this demographic actually is participating in an esport or competitive game scene in some way, shape or form, I'd say probably more than half. Uh, definitely more than half. Uh, the actual numbers will tell you anything between like 55 to 70, 80%. Um, but I think for me, anecdotally, it might be more reliable. And I'd say like probably two thirds of people in that demographic, either they play some kind of game that has a very developed esports scene or they actively follow esports scenes um, by watching broadcasts, by playing in the games. That uh, very actively themselves. That that's super interesting. Kind of numbers that that a lot of traditional sports, I think, would, yeah. would die for. Um, which which kind of it, sort of my final question. You know, with with the NBA, they have their esports league and 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 obviously the the, the traditional basketball. And and in motorsports, when when there were no races, we saw quite a lot of people doing you know the simulator races and so on. What other kind of uh, do you, do you see it more of that happening in the future between traditional sports and esports? Oh yeah, super interesting question. Uh, because for me, I love both traditional sports and esports. And I think again for this, we uh, I know you said focus on China side, but I have to make kind of like a maybe not a contrast, but at least a comparison between say North America and Europe and China. Uh, there's a pretty big uh, difference here in that North America and Europe. Traditional sports clubs and brands are, they have much bigger mind share and brand share um, in North America and Europe, right? Like in North America, for example, you have like the NBA teams and the NFL teams. Like these teams are super big brands. Um, They're top class world leading brands. Same in Europe, right? All the football clubs, they're top world leading brands. Whereas in China, if you say like CBA and like the Chinese uh, football league, like no offense to them, but... In terms of actual, yeah, in terms of actual interest levels and mindshare and just brand value, they're actually a fraction of the biggest esports clubs in China. So it's pretty much flipped um, in China versus uh, the West. Yeah. So in North America and Europe, you'll see a lot of uh, actual traditional sports clubs. They are getting involved in esports clubs by like big investments, brand collaborations, and things like that, and that actually adds a ton of value to those established esports clubs. Right. Like you have you have like football clubs having, you know, they, they're starting different esports divisions. You have like Paris Saint-Germain. They sponsor an, a whole esports division. Um, they have a collaboration with the biggest uh, esports club in our scene, Dota 2. And so that collaboration is called PSG.LGD. Uh, and it's just straight up a brand collaboration that adds a ton of value. And so PSG can do that with LGD, which is the Chinese club. Um, but why would a Chinese football club not be able to do that? Because the Chinese football club doesn't actually add any value to the Chinese esports brand. Uh, so I think in China, the trend um, of traditional sports collaborating with esports 
like it's also there but i think chinese clubs actually being able to do that i think they're actually maybe a step behind uh with regards to that i think esports clubs especially amongst younger generations is close to top tier in terms of prestige and value for young chinese fans well not to mention the fact that you know in, in china the chinese football clubs might not even be there you know from week to week <laughs> the way things are going right now yeah and and that's like that's super weird because usually esports with its like kind of new and nascent history a lot of esports clubs t- typically historically are the ones that are unstable but then that kind of illustrates how it's back it's the other way around it's flipped around in china where the esports clubs often are more stable than you know a football club yeah, really, really interesting parallel there. Well, I think that's a really good place to leave it. Thanks, Josh. Uh, really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, that, well, that was Josh Lee. I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, the one of the points that I that I thought was interesting was the point that he made about the Olympics. Does esports really need the Olympics, or does it does does the community really need to be at the Olympics? Well, well, particularly with his with his point about traditional sports in China, kind of lagging already lagging behind uh the esports industry you know you can see why if you're if you're a passionate fan and josh as he said you know he likes both esports and traditional sports himself but but for many just pure esports fans they'd be like why do we care about the olympics you know it's not it's not the peak for our for for us so yeah you know um it'd be interesting to see but but i think there's there's definitely as he alluded to the olympics have been talking for a while about trying to keep um get that get capture that younger demographic and i think actually esports they kind of have to flip it around you know when josh talks about everyone and their mother (laughs) watching uh watching edg win i was like well actually they kind of want that it's like they want the mums to watch because you know they're worried about people growing too old to be gamers um (laughs) so maybe maybe the mothers and the dads will, will be watching uh in in years to come so that's the show for this week thanks again to joshua lee It would help us a lot if you press that follow or subscribe button. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, consider leaving us a five-star rating or a comment. This helps people discover the show. And if you want to get in touch, the best way is probably Twitter. Mark, Mark, how can people find you? Twitter's the best, yeah. Uh, Dryer China, D-R-E-Y-E-R, China. And I am at twitter.com slash Hygballion. We will see you right here next week. Thank you.